Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we're gonna be talking, you know, a little bit about biotech, you know, a lot about building and scaling, uh, and then also about an amazing generation that came out of the 90s in Stanford. Uh, why not? So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Zachary Sweeney. Welcome to the Deal Maker Show. Thank you so much, Alejandro. I'm super excited to be here and appreciate the opportunity. So born in the 70s and raised in the Bay Area, I think that you're kind of like a one of a kind because that's more like a United Nations, like New York City, that everybody's coming from somewhere else. But uh, incredible that you were raised there and born there. I mean, everything. How were your upbringings like? Yeah, my I was uh, born and raised in California. I grew up mostly in Santa Rosa, which is about 40 miles north of San Francisco. Grew up in the 80s, as, as you mentioned, which was a really exciting time and, and place to be for a number of reasons. Culturally, it was an exciting uh, time. Lots of, I, I think, evolution that we still see today with respect to understanding and uh, anticipating the value of, of immigration, uh, understanding different cultural groups, and, and all of uh, that experience is, has really been useful to me in my role as an entrepreneur. And out of all things, Zach, why chemistry? Yeah, so originally I, I grew up in a family that was uh, very environmentally conscious. So I went to college anticipating that I would be an environmental engineer and helping in, in some way to you know, pr preserve our environment here in the state. And ultimately, I was attracted to the, the rigor of chemistry. Uh, there, it was an interesting subject. Uh, we had some outstanding professors at Stanford where I was an, an undergraduate student. Uh, and I saw that chemistry as a core discipline would provide me with the flexibility to pursue environmental engineering if I chose to do so, pursue medicine, uh, or uh, you know, pursue a career in biotechnology. One of the lessons that I think I, I've learned with respect to reevaluating my decision making over the years is that, you know, when in doubt, choose a path that provides you with optionality in the future. And so chemistry for me was uh, 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 that career choice where I realized that I could take that in a variety of different directions in the future. And how were how were those years like? I mean, there in the in the 90s where you were at Stanford, I mean, obviously Stanford 
is the place where you have the, the innovative approach, the entrepreneurial spirit. But uh, during that time is where some of the best entrepreneurs in history, you know, were there in the hallways. So, so tell us about, you know, how it was like and, and the type of people that you were, you know, there rubbing elbows with. Yeah, well, I think the environment at Stanford had a, a larger cultural context. So if you think about California in the uh, 80s and 90s, it was a, uh, uh, it was a state in, in transition and we were struggling with some uh, uh, you know, cultural issues that, that, that ultimately, I think, informed the personality types and a lot of the entrepreneurs that you're alluding to at Stanford. So there was the Proposition 187, for example, was a very prominent and controversial initiative uh, that related to immigration. Uh, there was, uh, I think, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the gay communities, it was known at the time, uh, was really struggling, I think, still for acceptance, even in an area like this. And so, you know, to make a long story short, uh, Stanford in 1990, when I started there, was a really interesting community where lots of different people were starting to appreciate the diverse uh, uh, contributions of, of different groups. And we were talking about things like, is America, you know, better considered to be a, what is it, a mixing pot? Or is it more like a salad bowl where each people are mixing together, but we're really trying to preserve individual, you know, autonomy and recognize different groups for, uh, uh, you know, their, their amazing contributions and in individual cultures. And so how do we unite kind of an organization and a group of people to be organizationally coherent and well-defined while also recognizing everybody's individuality. And I think that, again, you know, those are our concepts that are very relevant to the day-to-day -day job of an entrepreneur and a CEO. And, and, and in your case, I mean, you did the PhD in Berkeley, then the postdoctoral at the Harvard. So that, you know, in parallel with the undergrad as well in, in Stanford, I mean, Incredible journey there. I mean, were, were you like heading for doing something in academia or why, why were you pursuing those studies and collecting, you know, diplomas from some of the best universities in the world? Yeah. So my, the other thing that was happening at the time was actually the first pandemic in my lifetime was, which was the HIV pandemic. And this had a really strong effect on a lot of the undergraduates at Stanford at the time. So, you know, HIV was an incurable disease. Effective medicines hadn't been uh, yet been developed. And so many of us, I think, were in inspired to choose a career path that oriented generally around medicine and sciences as a, as a consequence. So, and, and so the HIV epidemic was happening. There were a lot of really interesting advances in genomics. That was part of, I think, maybe the second wave, as I characterize it, of like advances in genetics. And that's you know, we're, we're maybe in kind of the third or fourth wave, and it's something that we're incorporating into our approach here at Interline Therapeutics now. So you had the HIV epidemic uh, that was this major area of societal need and focus. You had emerging technologies, and uh, it, you had kind of demographic shifts. It was clear that the population was generally going to age. And so all of these things encouraged me to, again, transition from a, a focus in uh, studying the environment to studying hard sciences and particularly biomedical innovation. So I, at the strong suggestion of an of a, a, a professor at Stanford, where where I did some research, uh, pursued my PhD in chemistry at Berkeley and uh, studied one subdiscipline of chemistry there, uh, and then moved on to to Harvard. And I think 
you know, the major lessons that I uh, absorbed there were really how powerful it can be to be surrounded by uh, such incredible scientists and people, you know, I mean, you alluded to the time at Stanford, where all of these people that ultimately were going to become, you know, head of divisions or, you know, wonderful high school teachers or amazing entrepreneurs. And then at Berkeley and at, at Harvard, obviously, I was exposed, I think, to like, what I would consider to be true scientific genius, you know, people that won Nobel Prizes and, and established labs of their own. So we're entrepreneurial in an in a academic way. Uh, and, and, and again, was, was just able to, I think, appreciate all of the wonderful things about them and identify what my kind of strengths and weaknesses were and, and where I could fit in and, and hopefully try to make a contribution. And from there, you know, you joined uh, pretty large companies, actually, and you spent about 12 years of your life working for those companies. So what I want to do is I want to name them, and I just want you to tell me what was the lesson that you got out of each one of them. Just one. Okay, so let's start with the first one, with Roche, where you were there for six years. What was your lesson there? Yeah, I'll I'll tell you a lesson is a scientific lesson and then a personal lesson, just very concisely. So scientifically, I learned about drug discovery, uh, how to design molecules to to bind very tightly to their target, and then organizational, I learned about the value of investing in your employees. Roche is a large company, but it's also feels at times like a really a family run company, which in some ways it is, and it was a wonderful experience. So then let's talk about the next one, Genentech. Yeah, so at Genentech, I learned about really a different approach to uh, drug discovery that more focused on operational excellence. So how to think about drug discovery as a as an organizational process, uh, how to leverage uh, technologies, including computational technologies, uh, that, at scale in the context of drug discovery, and uh, about how to really, I think, uh, uh, value scientists broadly. Uh, in the context of a commercial company. And lastly, Novartis. Yeah, Novartis, uh, I learned so much about drug discovery, including oncology drug discovery. I think I learned uh, at at Novartis about program management, about uh, the concept of, of servant leadership, really the role of an organizational leader. And I learned about how a uh, organization can do many diverse things while still maintaining organizational coherence and scientific excellence. Now, after, you know, Novartis, you know, there, you know, one very important uh, pivotal moment for you that led to the creation of, of what you're doing now, which we're going to be talking about it in just a little bit, you know, with interline therapeutics. But Denali, you know, was, you know, the segue into it. And Denali was a little bit different from what you were used to uh, doing with, with some large corporations. So how do you land the, in Denali? Because in Denali, you were able to, to be there, the fourth employee, and then you were able to see the company. I mean, now the company, we're talking about a company that is valued at, uh, I think, something like $4 billion. I mean, it's not, not too shabby, perhaps you know, even more at, as of today. But, but how was that journey like? And why did you go from... What made you go from such large corporations to perhaps being the fourth employee of a, of a new entity? Yeah. So in each of these uh, large companies that we mentioned, I was fortunate to really be a founding scientist in a new disease unit. So sometimes you can get that entrepreneurial experience in a way in when you're a part of a large company. So large companies are 
you know, wonderful training grounds. And I think there is room to even train yourself to be an entrepreneur in that context. So at Roche, I was a member of the antiviral drug discovery group. I joined to find uh, new medicines for, for HIV. And that was a, a new group there. At Genentech, we're really expanding our efforts in neuroscience. And I had the opportunity to work with Mark Tessier-Levine, who's now the, the head of Stanford and was a uh, and and Ryan Watts and these two people founded uh, uh, Denali, and so after my experience at Novartis, uh, Alex Schuth, Ryan Watts, and Mark Tessier Levine uh, reached out to me to to join as the head of of therapeutic discovery to to help launch the the, the company that they had just co-founded. So that was uh, in in some ways, you know, what what led me from those experiences directly to to Denali. Because what were you guys doing there at Denali? Yeah, so at Denali, it's focused on finding neuro med new medicines for neurodegenerative diseases. Denali was actually, you know, the the third company I think that I had been involved with in some way, biotech, after my experience with uh, with with Novartis. And each of these companies was employing a new breakthrough technology to try to find new medicines for areas of unmet medical need. And the reason I was attracted to Denali. Uh, was really the the idea of the mission that there was new genetic information that told us more about the causes of neurodegenerative diseases than there ever had been before, and I recognized that my skills as a chemist, as a as somebody that identified uh, drug candidates, uh, I realized that these skills could be applied to help us uncover the the still mysterious biology of of these diseases and, and really make make progress in this area. So that was, a, a, again, a, a very exciting experience. The company rapidly scaled, and I was able to, to bring a lot of those lessons here with me to Interline. So then let's talk about Interline. So how does Interline all of a sudden fall through, you know, on your, on, on your radar? I mean, that incubation, that, you know, bringing the whole idea to life. I mean, what was that process like? Because obviously there was a very, very good partnership there, you know, that happened with the people that you chose to actually go at it? Yeah, so uh, go, even going back to my days at Stanford, I think what always really attracted me to science was this intersection of, new, of technologies and our understanding of common diseases. So when I was undergraduate at Stanford, I was fortunate enough to, you know, be walking by, walking down the hall, and there was Linus Pauling, you know, one of the greatest scientists of the 20th century. And one of the many contributions of Linus Pauling was helping us to understand the mechanisms uh, that were uh, that caused sickle cell disease. And then we had new genetic information that helped us connect that condition to genetics, to structural information, uh, to you know protection from malaria. So we're starting to understand diseases on a genetic level and on a molecular uh, uh, level. And then uh, I mentioned the HIV epidemic as well. I was really amazed by the, uh, bill, the, the finding in the mid-90s when the HIV epidemic was still at its peak that certain individuals were protected from HIV infection based on their genetic variation. So these individuals have a mutation in a cellular receptor known as CCR5, and it basically uh, prevents the uh, capsid of the HIV virus from effectively attaching to our cells and ultimately infecting our cells. So the equivalent finding today would be for you to learn somehow that you are genetically resistant to coronavirus. Uh, and it's a pretty profound finding. 
And uh, again, like linking genomic information to disease, to proteomic information to disease, to the real molecular mechanisms that we need to understand to develop effective therapeutics. Uh, and, and so ultimately, as I evolved my career and evolved my expertise, I realized that the a coherent aspect of my career was this intersection between genomic information, proteomic information, mechanisms of disease. And I was really committed to trying to use the, this, this kind of information as we get more and more of it to find effective medicines for, for common, common diseases. And that was part of what we were doing at Denali Therapeutics, but, as it, it, but, but it evolved and, and I saw the opportunity to uh, uh, focus on application of, of new technologies to, to this endeavor. And so uh, when I left Denali, I was in close contact with one of the board members of Denali, uh, the, uh, uh, Bob Nelson, who's uh, the managing director of Arch Venture Partners, a major venture capital company uh, that funds early stage biotechnology companies. And I was really attracted as well to uh, Jim Tannenbaum, Vic Bajaj's Foresight Labs incubator group, in part because they shared this vision of using large data sets and genomic information to, to found new companies. So I had a lot of options after the success of Denali and Revolution Medicines and some of the other places that I had, had been. And I realized that combining the uh, philosophy of Arch, which is you know very entrepreneur-centric, very large concept uh, with these well-funded biotech companies really trying to tackle major disease areas or new approaches to uh, discovering medicines with uh, the, the kind of philosophy and focus of, of Foresight Labs, we could, we could do something really special. So the idea from the outset was to work with these two companies to launch a, a, a new uh, entity, and that's what became Interline Therapeutics. So then for the people that are listening, what is Interline Therapeutics all about? Yeah, so Interline Therapeutics is a company that is really focused on how we best correlate uh, genetic information, a genotype, with a proteotype, what we call a proteotype, which are cha corresponding changes in the proteome of people. So to think about this on a physiological context for a broader audience, you know, the cellular environment is very complex and crowded. There are actually in an individual cell, 10 billion proteins, maybe 10,000 different proteins. And it, proteins making contact with one another are actually what uh, transmit a, transmits a signal from one part of the cell to the other parts of the cell. And key aspects of this are still unknown. And so you have a genotype, you have a proteotype, and then ultimately you have a phenotype, say, you know, high cholesterol as being an example or a disease susceptibility of being a collect, uh, an example. And so we're getting lots and lots of new genetic information. As some of your other guests may have mentioned, the cost of genomic sequencing is declining. You know, you could get your entire genome sequence for somewhere between $1,000 and $100. And so there's more and more of this information, but we have a gap in understanding the proteotype, how it relates to genetics. And we have a gap in also understanding how some of our medicines affect the proteotype. This, uh, this information isn't entirely absent, but it's still insufficient to really make our drug discovery efforts uh, efficient. So Interline Therapeutics is ultimately a company that is oriented around using this new technology to make the drug discovery process more efficient. And, and obviously Interline is your first baby. So 
I mean, obviously, you were an entrepreneur, you know, with the other uh, companies that you were associated, like leading, you know, different things. But this is like your real first company that that you're leading. Now, in this in this regard, I mean, what what would you say is the foundation to become an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think that the the foundation of entrepreneurship is ultimately identifying a need. You know, I love the titles that you have in your podcast, Alejandra. You know, you say this person raised this much money to do something, right? And I think it's the to do something that that is that is important. So <laughs> being sensitive, and, and ultimately that comes back, you know, and I probably wasn't as, as articulate as I would have liked to have been, but it comes back to appreciating the people that are surround you, you know, the amazing individuals that make up our culture and trying to think about like what their needs are and how can you contribute. And that was, a, a, I think, a, a foundation of my 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 upbringing you know my parents were i think very socially conscious individuals and and you know both myself and my siblings have careers that reflect uh, in some ways their their priorities so that's the the most important thing i think is valuing people and their and their needs there's also you know the recognizing opportunity uh being willing to work really really hard and wait for you know the time to be right for for you uh, and then I think that there is an element of uh, surrounding yourself with amazing people that don't value you for uh, your accomplishments, but just value you uh, uh, as, as, as an individual that gives you that, that, that ability to, uh, to take risks. So a broader social foundation and social network outside of your narrow interest uh, area of entrepreneurship. So those are, I think, the three things that are, are super important for, for almost any entrepreneur. So when you say about valuing people, you know, obviously you guys have grown quite a bit, you know, in the last year. So how do you go about approaching hiring and, and management? Yeah. So I, I think focusing very clearly at the outset of a hiring discussion on where the synergies are between your vision for the company growth and that individual's uh, vision for their own career progression and how you are going to enable them to grow their technical skill, skills, their understanding of drug discovery, their, uh, their skills as a manager, you know, whatever their individual aspirations are of, of understanding those very clearly and then trying to make sure that the position that you have available as you grow the company is aligned with those aspirations. and then. Management is relatively simple. The hiring decision is 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 relatively simple if there's a, a very clear alignment from the outset in, in that area. So that's how I try to approach uh, every hiring conversation and, and every decision is to make sure that in that three to five year time frame, you know, the drug discovery cycles are relatively slow. That I'm very confident that I'm going to be able to provide a uh, environment that is going to expand that individual skill set help them propel them, you know, and, and be able to help propel them to the next phase of their career. And for Interline, you know, again, going back to valuing people, how much capital have you guys raised to date? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, raising capital is all about the people that is giving you the capital. Yeah, absolutely. So we've raised, uh, our Series A was about $93 million. Drug discovery is is expensive, so we raised a, a significant sum from the beginning. You know, we're using that money to build a drug discovery platform that I mentioned earlier, but also to advance 
uh, therapeutic programs that we hope will be in the clinic in the in the next couple of years. So, so we raised uh, uh, that amount of money, and I think our ability to raise that amount of money was based in in large part on our approach to people. So, uh, I've worked in this area for a long time, and I was able to attract some amazing people to to interline from the outset. And you know, so Nick Galley, Galley, for example, I can name some of these people. I think it would be maybe of interest to your to your listeners is the chief operating officer, and he joined you know when we were kind of in seed incubation. Uh, stage. He was the head of business development with me at, at when I was at Denali, for example. So we have this common history. The head of medicinal chemistry, David Tully, was a colleague of mine at Novartis. Our chief technical officer was a colleague of mine at, uh, at, at Genentech, where we collaborated together very effectively. And some of our other amazing founding scientists uh, were uh, worked with with you know we had common common friends basically from from other from other companies and so our ability to raise that amount of money was not just based on the vision that that, that I outlined earlier about how we could do drug discovery differently but it was based I think on kind of the our founders and our funders realization that we we're starting to get you know a, a, a special team of of people together to accomplish our mission. So that was a, a really important part of the funding cycle was demonstrating that you can attract these scientists to your company. I mean, ultimately, that's the ultimate validation, right? Is people are, are willing to change their career, leave their jobs, and uh, apply their incredible skills to uh, uh, something that is, you know, really a 20-slide slide deck at that point. And, you know, it's incredible the... Um the names and the track record that you were sharing now, you know, that are part of your team. What, what is, uh, and I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are, that are listening now and watching and, and they're wondering, oh, you know, like, I wonder if I could ever, you know, enroll people of that caliber. I mean, how, what is that process of getting someone that is so successful already in their own right, in their professional career, to really see clearly that it makes sense for them to join you on the path that you're carving for, for, for this company? I think it, I would invoke again the principles that I outlined earlier of trying to outline, to making sure that Interline is going to be a place for them to even do more amazing things in the next phase of their career. Like I want Interline to be a place where everybody the incredible junior scientists that I haven't had the opportunity to mention, the place where they do their best work. Uh, you know, that was a phrase that was used by, by, by our amazing chairman of the board at Denali, Vicky Sato. And if you can come to work every day as a CEO and focus entirely on trying to make your company the place where your employees can do their best work, you know, I, th I think you're doing the bulk of, the bulk of, your, of your job. So recruiting those individuals was really about trying to help them to understand how Interline was going to be a place where their skill set uh, was going to be applied in such a way that they were going to be able to progress even to the next phase of their career. They were going to be more at the center of the drug discovery programs. They were going to have a more prominent role in learning how to interact with investors, learning how to manage groups remotely. I mean, whatever the case is, that, that again, it was a very clear win-win situation. And if you're setting up a company where everybody understands the win-win situation uh, on an individual and company-wide level from the beginning, then it allows you to focus on on other things as a, as, as a CEO, like just making that place a great place to work. 
So obviously, being able to allow people to see a compelling and exciting future for themselves, if I'm, if yeah. I'm listening right. Exactly. Okay. And I probably wasn't as clear, but let me give you a more tangible example. So we're applying proteomic technologies more centrally to the drug discovery process than many other companies would. So you can take uh, or so you can talk to people that have this incredible skill set, describe to them how you're going to reformulate the drug discovery process and make them a more of a central part of your company than they are at another company. And they realize that that that's an exciting proposition for them. And then next thing you know, you've again attracted an incredible leader with an incredible technical skill set to your company. And your job just needs to be to make sure that they are truly at the center of the drug discovery process like you promised them they would be. So as we're talking about the future here, Zach, imagine that you go to sleep tonight and you yeah. wake up in a world where the vision of Interline is fully realized. You wake up in a world, whatever that is, five years later, 10 years later, whenever that is, but you wake up and everything is there. You can see it. It's fully realized. What does that world look like? Yeah. So Interline is founded, again, to like, really enable us to use genetic information to develop a wonderful understanding of disease. And so what we know from the first few gener the first couple of eras of genetically driven drug discovery is that programs with a strong genetic foundation are more successful. And unfortunately, in the drug discovery industry, we are plagued by a very high attrition rate. You know, Nubarafayan has a beautiful quote that says, you know, you should imagine what the drug discovery industry would be like if, uh, if it was more like making Fitbits. And that's something that resonates with me very clearly because a friend of mine from, uh, from, from my undergraduate days is actually in charge of the Google division that makes Fitbits. And so why do I come to work every day with this tremendous sense of uncertainty uh, regarding the products that I'm going to produce when Rick can go to work every day and have high confidence that he's going to be able to make a Fitbit. So if I wake up in five years and, you know, or 10 years and the vision of Interline has been realized, we won't have a 4% success rate for drug discovery projects. We'll have a 40% success rate. And we will be able to use new genetic information to really deeply understand molecular mechanisms of disease. We'll be able to use new technologies to uh, uh, make sure that our, our, our drugs really correct uh, th those dysregulated molecular mechanisms, and we'll have a reproducible path for drug discovery that just simply doesn't, doesn't exist today. So I'm really excited, as you can tell, about the potential for that, uh, that vision to be fulfilled. It's certainly not a, a vision that's only unique to Interline, but uh, I think that we, we might you know, play a key, key, key part here uh, in, in making that vision manifest. And obviously, I mean, you guys have been at it for, for a few years. I mean, it's not like a crazy long time that you've been at it now with Interline, but I'm sure that, you know, those few years, you know, as you were mentioning, you know, you've surrounded yourself by the right people. Um, and uh, I'm sure that there's been a ton of lessons too along the way. So if I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, and you have the opportunity of having a chat with that younger sack. I mean, that younger sack of a few years ago that is thinking about launching something. And you were able to have a sit down with that younger sack and, and give that younger sack one piece of advice before launching Interline. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I think that the piece of advice that I would give to the younger Zach would be to 
you know, make sure to balance the sense of dissatisfaction and the sense that, you know, you can, you can enable important change with like a deep appreciation for all the opportunities that you've been provided. And there's the, you know, a balance, right? At, at Arch in particular, they say in order to be a really successful CEO, you have to be, you know, a little bit dissatisfied. And I think that's true. You have to see the opportunity for change. But I also think that in order to be a successful leader, you have to, again, recognize amazing people, recognize the amazing opportunities that you've been provided and, and, and be patient, you know, help people grow, uh, accept that uh, things aren't perfect from the beginning, that you're on version 1.0 and that you're in a process of, of continuous improvement and that you're fortunate to have the, the, the opportunity, the funding and the time to uh, to, to, to facilitate that, 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 that growth. So it's really balancing this kind of vision for change with, I think, a, a deep appreciation for, for living in an amazing time for entrepreneurship and technology implementation. Amazing. Well, Zach, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, so I, uh, I'm, on, I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. You know, my email is Zachary Kevin Sweeney. At, uh, at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, I'm always happy again to, to connect with people, as you can tell, hopefully from this interview, I'm super lucky to have an amazing network and I'm always happy to expand it. Amazing. Well, Zach, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Okay. No, thank you, Alejandro, so much for, for the conversation. I, I really appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.